This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I hear the same story over and over again, which is I didn't really think about it. You know, the nurse came in and already had the vaccines drawn up. It seemed like that was what was to be done that day. So I didn't really object. Certainly, it might have probably be easy for the biggest decision you probably make throughout your lifetime. If it's your child, you're the one that needs to weigh up those risks and benefits um, because whether there is a vaccine injury or whether you get the um, disease, there are risks and benefits to the disease or the vaccine injury, but there are risks on both sides. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season one of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at children's health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. We'll hear the inspirational stories of change from patients and their families along their healing journey. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation on childhood immunizations. We speak again to US pediatrician Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, naturopath Amanda Howe, and a parent who's navigated this space with his own children. Let's go now to looking at the different options. And I've been onto your website and I can see that you offer a modified vaccine schedule based on the individual needs of each child that you see. Is this something that you've personally designed for families who want to space out the vaccinations? Yes. So my critics would say that my schedule has not been compared enough to the CDC schedule to see any potential uh, benefits of spreading out or modifying the vaccine schedule. But I would tell my critics that the CDC has actually never studied their own schedule in aggregate. Typically what has happened is as time has gone on and new vaccines have been invented, they've been added to the schedule under the presumption that they would interact synergistically okay with other vaccines that are given at that same age. But that has not been critically studied and published by the CDC uh, to my knowledge. If anyone else has that information and wants to share that, I would love to see that. Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, respected US integrative pediatrician. But there were several reasons that I came to modify the schedule for my patients. One is I am in a position where I've heard stories now from probably somewhere close to 600 sets of parents of children who have autism. And 
fraction of them, it's not all of them, but somewhere between 22 and 33% of parents do seem to think that vaccines played a role in their child's regressive autism in particular or complex chronic illness. So when that first started happening, I was concerned about thimerosal, which is 49% mercury, which had been added to vaccines in the 80s and 90s as a preservative. And I looked into the decisions that were made that thimerosal was safe and the fact that as we added more vaccines into the schedule, uh, nobody really did the math to say, well, it's a pretty small amount of mercury in each vaccines, but if we give five for example, thimerosal-containing vaccines at once, and we happen to have a child who has a genetic predisposition or an impairment in their detoxification mechanisms that makes it harder for them to eliminate mercury and such things do exist, then maybe for a subset of children, that's going to be more dangerous. Now, when I'm doing a regular physical exam on a child in a well baby checkup, I don't really have an insight into how well their liver enzymes work or how well their detoxification pathways work. I can't look at their bodies and tell what their genomics are. So my idea of giving some vaccines at the two-month checkup, for example, and asking patients to return in a month to get the others that would ordinarily all be given together was partially to try to limit the exposure of any adjuvants that might be harmful. After thimerosal was phased out from childhood vaccines in the period from 1999 to about 2003-2004, then the amount of aluminum adjuvants was increased. And I have concerns about aluminum also. Um, Aluminum is like mercury and no neurotoxin. And again, it might be what seems to be a small amount of aluminum in a specific individual vaccine. But if you multiply that by four or five vaccines at one visit, it could be difficult for a subset of children to handle that. And just because the vast majority of children might be able to do okay with aluminum, that doesn't mean to me that I have any less responsibility for the subset that might have difficulty handling it. So the cumulative effects of the adjuvants, and I should probably explain for your audience, adjuvants like aluminum are added to vaccines in order to provoke the immune system to make a good response to whatever the modified organism, the killed organism, the attenuated organism that comprises the vaccine, um, that's the role of aluminum is to help you have a good um, response. So I would basically... um, advise people to look at some of the data on aluminum. There's a wonderful guy named Chris Exley. It's spelled E-X-L-E-Y. He um, is a scientist in the United Kingdom, and he has written a book for the lay public, and it's called Imagine You Are an Aluminum Atom. And he takes 
that's his very extensive experience, and I'm talking like 30 years of uh, work in the lab as a scientist on the effects of aluminum in the environment, in the human body, in the human brain, and translated it translates it for a lay audience in a way that I found very readable, very entertaining, and I admire him very much. So that is definitely a very good read for those parents that may be considering not doing too many vaccines at the same time in order to decrease the exposure of their child uh, to aluminum. Thank you for that suggestion. I'll, I'll look at that myself. What are some instances where children, or you might even speak to the families about really considering that modified schedule? So I very much believe that we should be asking about family history. So from my clinical experience, which is now in its 21st year looking at this issue, I think there are a lot of clues to be gained from the family history. If the mother, for example, has a significant autoimmune disease like lupus or autoimmune thyroiditis or rheumatoid arthritis. Those are all autoimmune diseases. And we know that both mercury and aluminum tend to be triggers for autoimmune diseases. So I have to consider the possibility that the mother's genetics have been passed on to the child to some, you know, as yet unknown degree without doing specific genetic testing. So family histories are very important. I also look for family histories of diseases like Alzheimer's or neurologic diseases or autism because those family histories might signal an increased risk for the patient before me. Another situation I look at very carefully is if an older sibling has a chronic disease or a neurodevelopmental problem that is biologically plausibly potentially related to vaccine effects. In that situation, I view the older sibling as a bit of a surrogate marker for the baby I'm taking care of at that point for that baby's genetics. I'll give you an analogy. Um, some babies in certain families tend to follow a growth pattern where they tend to be very scrawny as babies and then they end up being healthy later. And so... If I'm taking care of the first baby in that family and I see that baby being very low on the growth chart, I might think, wow, you know, do I need to work this child up for failure to thrive? Does he or she have an underlying kidney problem or cardiovascular problem or gastrointestinal malabsorption problem? Um, and I, I'm on a little bit higher alert. If the family has four babies in a row that all follow the same growth pattern and end up being healthy and fine, I don't worry as much for the third or fourth child. So I think that's a good analogy to look at how we might use the older siblings' uh, neurodevelopmental issues or chronic disease issues as a guideline. And the other factor I use is if other people in the family had reactions to vaccines. 
Um, depending on the vaccine, there are several different ways in which a particular person might be predisposed to an adverse vaccine reaction. So if I can learn from an older sibling's or a parent's vaccine reaction, that can at least allow me to develop some hypotheses, some uh, ideas about what may be a good strategy for immunizing that child in a way that doesn't follow the CDC schedule to the letter. And even with any patient on any schedule, do you co-prescribe, you know, some supportive nutrients, for example, for the adjuvants in particular? Yes. So one thing I like to do in my practice that I think is good medicine is to try to immunize children when they are well. There was a concern back in the 1990s raised by the American Academy of Pediatrics that some children were falling behind on their vaccine schedule. And the AAP was motivated by wanting to make sure that we didn't see a resurgence of vaccine-preventable illnesses like measles or mumps or whooping cough. And so they had a little campaign called Grab em and Stab em, which meant that if you were seeing a patient for an ear infection, for example, and they were behind on their vaccines, maybe you should give uh, the vaccines at that visit because you didn't know for sure if the patient would come back to catch up on vaccines later. I'm lucky enough in my practice to have patients who trust me and will come back. And so I tend to not vaccinate if they've got an acute illness if they're on antibiotics or just recently coming off antibiotics. One reason for that is that we know that even one course of antibiotics changes a child's microbiome. And microbiome refers to the combination of bacteria that are in our guts and on our skin and in our sinuses. And the gut microbiome is particularly important for developing a healthy immune system. So in the first place, I like to avoid too many antibiotics in infancy, and I try very hard not to give antibiotics for vaccine illness, for, I'm sorry, viral illnesses where they won't be helpful. But I also try to use probiotics or prebiotics or cultured foods to restore the microbiome after I give an antibiotic. So if my patient is just coming off the course of antibiotics, my thought is that their immune system is not properly enhanced to be in a good position to take a vaccine and both be at low risk for having a side effect and also make a good, robust immune response to it. So we tend to avoid immunizing uh, when kids are sick or on antibiotics. And what about um, any kind of antioxidants or do you, do you co-prescribe any other nutrients when the child is being vaccinated? I mean, obviously, it depends on the, on the age of the child. As a baby, it's much more difficult, but as they age? So even with babies, um, we like to have our babies on supplements of vitamin A, vitamin D, and good oils for the brain, typically DHA, which is the one that is prominent in breast milk, the one that formula companies are adding to formula in an attempt to provide that good brain support. And we do that for everyone, or at least we recommend it for everyone. Then 
at that point, it becomes a decision based on the individual patient. So for example, if I have what I would regard a high-risk patient who comes from a state in this country where they do not allow medical or religious exemptions, and um, I have patients from West Virginia and California, for example, where that um, now is the case, we will support them sometimes with even more aggressive uh, support for their mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cell, and support for their detoxification systems. So let me tell you a little bit about mitochondria. Mitochondria are these amazing organisms. They literally were organisms that we co-evolved with as bacteria were incorporated into our cells many millions of years ago. And if you want to read more about this, you should look at the work of Lynn Margulis, M-A-R-G-U-L-I-S, who I think of as the mother scientist of mitochondria. Um, We know that mitochondria um, provide energy for every cell we have, but unfortunately they're a little persnickety and they can be damaged by certain viruses Uh, certain heavy metals, certain plastics and other environmental toxins. And we believe based on science and clinical experience that vaccines can be a mitochondrial stressor for some children. So in children that I worry about their mitochondrial function, for at least a week before and a week after a vaccine, we may sometimes recommend mitochondrial support, which includes B vitamins, especially riboflavin and niacin, vitamin C, um, things like L-carnitine and CoQ10. All of those things are designed to help the mitochondria respond to the threat that they see from a vaccine or a vaccine adjuvant. The other thing that we like to do is to work on their detoxification system. So your liver is an important part of detoxification. So sometimes we will recommend some liver support, which can be something as easy as uh, doing some silly marin, which is also known as milk thistle, which supports the liver. We also are big fans of using glutathione, Glutathione is uh, your body's best intracellular antioxidant to fight oxidative stress. And it also helps regenerate your gut epithelium. It supports mitochondria. It helps balance your immune system responses. And it's the gateway to detoxification. So those are um, things that can be very helpful for a child that might have a problem handling a vaccine. And you can get glutathione in a liquid format. We recommend that it be a liposuitical kind, meaning that it's surrounded by some fat so that it can get through the stomach without being destroyed by stomach acid if you're taking it orally. It can also be given intravenously, which we would do if it was a really high-risk child who was legally required to have a vaccine that I'm concerned they might have a bad reaction to. And that is not widely available to the general public. Um, and 
probably not widely available in Australia, at least the last time I was there. So I just think that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and that if we're thoughtful about um, how an individual child might do with a vaccine or a set of vaccines, we can move from a one-size-fits-all vaccine policy to one that um, bears in mind the intent of vaccines, which is the hope to prevent um, disease in the population at large from a public health standpoint, but also my responsibility as a physician for an individual child is to try to protect them and have them have the best outcome. Absolutely. Just one question about the glutathione. Do you prefer glutathione over N-acetylcysteine? Um, N-acetylcysteine is another wonderful thing. NAC is the precursor to glutathione. And I'm glad you reminded me about that because that is more widely available. And what the N-acetylcysteine does is give your body the building blocks to make your glutathione. So that is an excellent way of supporting the body's detoxification mechanisms. And we do like NAC and use a lot of NAC in our practice. So you mentioned, Dr. Mumper, that you you might give mitochondrial support for, was it a week before and a week after? Is that the same for the detoxification support? Yes. And, you know, whenever I give guidelines like a week before, a week after, you have to understand that is based on, number one, my clinical experience. I have not been able to get uh, scientific studies about that done or funded. And, uh, you know, that means I might do it for two weeks if a child was at higher risk. I might extend from two weeks after, or I might modify it in other ways. So these are guidelines. And medicine in the United States is moving toward the development of clinical pathways and medical protocols. And I think all those things have their places. Um, Some of that in medicine evolved from when pilots would do checklists before a flight, because obviously you don't want to forget anything when you do a flight. But protocols in medicine, um, I don't think should just be followed blindly for doing the same for every patient. I do think that there's room for clinical expertise and the value of a clinician looking at an individual patient for whom he or she is responsible and trying to make sure that individual gets the best care. So just going back to your schedule, um, you recommend separating the MMR and the varicella vaccines as live vaccines. Can you give me some reasons behind that, please? My main reason is anecdotal, and it's based on the reports of a group of mothers in Oregon. And I will preface this by saying, I think that mothers of children where they observe their child's reactions their opinions deserve to be listened to because I think they have some very valuable insights. And um, during the years that I was medical director for the Autism Research Institute, I became aware of a bunch of mothers in Oregon who had participated in a medical trial 
in a practice looking at the combination of MMR vaccine, which is measles, mumps, rubella, and Verivax, which is the chickenpox vaccine, being given all together. And the mothers noticed that one of the 65 or 67 children in that trial developed autism, uh, temporally related to the vaccine, which I will say for my detractors, I am not suggesting is necessarily causally related, but it should be considered as a possibility that that may be causally related. And the child in that study was essentially an outlier that was dismissed from the ultimate reports when the trial was reported in terms of adverse events. And so one of the basic rules to me for medicine is, you know, if you set up a study protocol, you don't deviate from that later because you get an unexpected report an unexpected outcome, I should say. You report that as what you saw, and then you make an honest effort to say, we don't think it was related. We think it could have been related for the following reasons. It deserves more study, that kind of thing. So as long as MMR and varicella are available separately, which they are now, I find that most of my parents are willing to have their child get two different injections in order to follow my advice based on my clinical experience. The other reason that I um, am a fan of separating vaccines is that there was a big controversy in England that started around 1998 and was a kind of a live hot button issue for five or seven years from about 1998 to 2005 that revolved around research that was done by a scientist called Andrew Wakefield, who has since been pilloried and allegedly discredited, but who made this simple clinical observation in a paper he published that parents of children he worked with had reported to him that their child's gastrointestinal problems seemed to have started when they got the MMR vaccine. And at that time, MMR was available as separate injections. And he made the recommendation when discussing his research that perhaps we should give them separately rather than all together. And he had a background studying inflammatory bowel disease. He was a gastrointestinal surgeon. And I thought that I should respect his perspective and his honoring the parents on their observations. And while that was available, I did give those vaccines separately. Shortly thereafter, the manufacturer decided not to make them available separately. And now I don't have a choice and I have to do them together. But I do still have a choice not to give MMR with the chickenpox vaccine in the same injection or at the same time. And I have chosen to do that in my patients. I also noticed that um, hepatitis B, it's often delayed until the child is two to three years old, according to a modif- your modified schedule. Um, and do you have some reasons for that as well? 
So actually, in my country, hepatitis B is given at birth, either day one, two, or three, before the child is, um, you know, discharged from the hospital. And there, in my best medical judgment, and I have been a pediatrician for 41 years, looking specifically at vaccine history for uh, 21 years, I don't think there are good enough reasons for that. So one reason that was given at the time was that we don't always know the hepatitis B status of the mother. You know, if the mother is a drug abuser using IV drugs or she's a prostitute, she's not necessarily going to volunteer that information if she shows up to deliver a baby and you don't have her prior records of what her hepatitis B um, status is. So the decision was made to vaccinate everybody, not to miss those kids. Another reason was that the population you really want to reach with hepatitis B vaccine are people who are um, sexually active and or potentially using IV drugs because hepatitis B is spread through bodily fluids. And if you can't really get to those people who don't tend to show up as much in doctor's offices when they're teenagers or young adults, you know, children are a captive population. Most parents are very good about bringing their child into the doctor, um, at least when they're babies and um, children. So the concern I had was, you know, I'm obligated to first do no harm. So I don't want to give a baby any medical intervention that they don't need. So when I stopped, when that recommendation was made and I didn't want to give my babies vaccines at the hospital, we were looking at how they did later. And so I've done some clinical research based on my own patients and comparing my patients who don't get hepatitis B vaccine at birth to other patients who got it at birth in other practices my patients have less problems with colic, less problems with establishing breastfeeding. They tend to be easier to soothe. They have less sleep problems. Now, I need to be very clear here that the patients I get from other practices, I may be getting a very biased sample because they transfer to me from another practice is that just that I'm a pediatrician in town that they happen to luck into and they were, you know, just as likely to go to somebody else or did they choose our practice because we know they know we have some special interest in kids with chronic illness. So that is nothing that I can claim as a scientific comparison that would meet scientific standards to publish. But I do think I have the right to fall back on my first do no harm oath and manage patients whose mothers are hepatitis B negative, not at risk in infancy, and not give them any medical intervention they don't really need. So we tend to delay hep B shots to two or three years, and that's because they are required in the state of Virginia where I practice for children at school entry, and depending on the type of daycare they go to, some daycare is recommended for daycare. I think that's a much better outcome. By three years of age, I can tell in general, if that patient is mostly healthy or if that's a kid who has a lot of allergies 
or asthma or developmental delays. And I have a chance to work on correcting their health problems before giving them a vaccine they really don't need for their own protection. What is the outcome for children you've seen in your practice who do follow that modified schedule um, as far as potential side effects are concerned? So if you if you have a child right from birth and they follow that schedule, can it, I, know, I know it's a difficult thing to compare, but, um, but what is your take or your clinical experience on the outcomes for them? So we have shown in our practice that our patients who follow the schedule have less asthma, less ear infections, and therefore less antibiotic use and less developmental delay. So there is a paper that was published by Hooker and Miller in May of 2020 that reports outcomes that are very congruent with my clinical outcomes. And I would encourage your listeners to look at that paper. Um, There's another paper that was published in November of 2020 by Paul Thomas and James Lyons-Weiler, who showed a another cohort of patients looking at these vaccine schedules that are modified in a different way. And they also reported strikingly better outcomes. And they looked at many more outcomes than were reported in Hooker and Miller's paper. And then there's a third resource and it's called the control group. You can Google this. And that was a survey study of parents of kids that were actually totally unvaccinated. And in our country, that is less than 1% of the population. Almost every child in America has gotten at least one or two or five or 10 vaccines. So fortuitously, last night for the first time, I saw a video and I would encourage your listeners to go to the Children's Health Defense website. I did not know this video was coming out, but it came out yesterday and there's a link there for a YouTube video that is only 14 minutes long. And it looks at these three studies and explains the, I think, pretty compelling evidence that we at least need to look at this issue and study it further. I think for people that don't have the time to look at all the uh, original papers about this issue, which can also be very intimidating if you don't have a background in science, uh, the video is a lay interpretation that I think explained well in a way that ought to at least raise the issue of looking at vaccine safety. And I will tell you that during the years I was medical advisor for or medical director for the Autism Research Institute, I had the opportunity to talk with top officials from both the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Center for Disease Control, and the National Institutes of Health. And during those years, 
we were very much sharing our clinical concerns about vaccine safety and saying, we're seeing this signal clinically in our patient populations. We're not saying that we know exactly what it means, but we do think that it would be good to look at the issue of kids that are highly vaccinated versus children that are under vaccinated or not vaccinated. And when you do a study like that, you are essentially trying to do a placebo-controlled study. And that has not been done. I think their concern was that it would be unethical from their perspective to have a population of people who were given no vaccines. And if it was a population that actually chose to be in the control group without vaccines, that there would be other factors that they couldn't control for. And so studies have not been done, but I do think that we have paid a price for that. And that is why I am working now, especially in the age of COVID when vaccines are in people's minds so much to just try to make sure that if people have to get vaccinated, want to get vaccinated, see the benefits of being vaccinated, that we have our eyes wide open and help them through that process. Amanda Howe is a naturopath on the New South Wales South Coast and a mum of two. She says she makes space for all family decisions surrounding immunisation, but most families who she sees follow the Australian government schedule. I think that it's important to recognise that when you're supporting families who do undergo the um, complete vaccine schedule is that you're treating uh, babies from six to eight weeks old to four years. I think the most important and number one information that needs to be given to parents is if the, the child is unwell in any way and shows symptoms of fighting any kind of infection, their immune system is already struggling and needing to fight that infection. And my first recommendation is to avoid and delay the vaccine at that time until the child is fully well. In terms of supporting through that six-week to four-year period, the mode of delivery changes. I think that the preferable mode of delivery for babies who are under one um, and preferably they've been breastfed is to support the mum and the mum's health and and then the baby will get that support through the breast milk. Um, to build immune system response, it's our typical zinc and, and vitamin C. I think that they're really paramount. Um, I really love the cod liver oil because it has already um, naturally containing vitamin A and vitamin D. Um, and for detoxification, I think it's really important to support that glutathione pathway as we do know that the vaccines deplete that glutathione pathway and that can either be done with N-acetylcysteine uh, or glutathione itself. And to the baby, we can actually give baby biotics or probiotics that are specific to the baby gut flora and I think that's a really safe way to support the baby itself and I do love um, I'm not trained I'm not a trained homeopath uh, but certainly there are products that um, are homeopathic related that support pre and post vaccine support so I really love those type of products so it's 
those five supplements that are the core. I start with that treatment prior to about two weeks prior to the vaccine and continue that two weeks after. And I think also that nutrition is a really, really important part. We need to be building immune health and building resiliency. So if it depends on what, I mean, people prefer the supplements. I do love giving a lot of dietary information. I think it's important to reduce the inflammatory components in the diet, things like gluten and dairy, and to be getting maximum um, vegetable intake, lots of fibre through that vegetable intake, healthy fats, avoiding the toxic uh, vegetable oils. So it's reducing inflammation in the diet, boosting as much nutrition as possible to make uh, the mum or the baby or the child as, as healthy as possible before they undergo vaccines. And the family who um, decides not to vaccinate, but I guess you might see them in the capacity where their, their child might have contracted one of the viruses that the vaccine covered. Do you have any examples of that? First, with the people who choose not to vaccinate, my most important advice around that, for especially for the mums, is that breastfeeding is really, really vital. So the mums can mount an immune response and create immunoglobulins that they can pass on to their baby um, as long as they're breastfeeding. So I think that if the choice is made, if that choice is made, breastfeeding is is just number one important to pass on that immune system so they can be protected against viruses and things that the mother is exposed to. Um, I have actually treated conditions that are vaccinated for. The thing is that it's in that treatment, it's not only for the children who are unvaccinated because I've actually treated just as many people with whooping cough that actually I've treated more people with whooping cough. We had an outbreak here uh, last year within the community in lots of different schools and most people that I treated were actually vaccinated. In terms of whooping cough support, I refer back to the Dr Susan Humphreys vitamin C protocol um, you basically give high doses of regular vitamin C to reach um, bowel tolerance. And it was phenomenal the amount of vitamin C that these kids could take without reaching bowel tolerance because of that vitamin C and that antioxidant need because of the, the actual potassium toxin. I've only ever treated one case of rubella and I believe that child was vaccinated. I guess we just don't see it very much. And first of all, it's really important that their primary carers and their primary doctors are first seen to. Like, I think that that's most important. They need to be seen in the medical world. In terms of rubella, I just, we just supported immune health through zinc and vitamin C. And what's really important is electrolyte and hydration um, to avoid, you know, dehydration. That's really key in um situations where the kids have fevers and I think that because because we're a society that so relies on Panadol we've lost just the simple tepid bath techniques and the cold face washer and and being there with their child and allowing them to have that immune response and that fever to fight that infection so I think that it's important to um, support that fever and obviously monitoring it really closely so it doesn't get too high and with the kids, I love the elderberry and the echinacea mix. I think that that's a favourite that I go back to. I think it's really safe for kids and 
the elderberry can sweeten and make that echinacea taste a little bit nicer. So that's something that I really love when we can get that into our kids. Just going back to the vitamin C protocol, what were those some of those doses that, that they were able to take before they reached bowel tolerance? A thousand milligrams, but basically it's given every hour to reach bowel tolerance. I had some kids that were taking it every hour for 12 hours without having diarrhea. And that would be consistent for days. And then after the initial diagnosis, then we would reduce that dose and, and move to every two hours. But more often than not, the kids weren't getting diarrhea from doses that were consistent for hours long. Um, and that was the biggest surprise for me. I actually, when I before I gave the protocol to any child, I did it myself and I wasn't unwell. And, you know, I got to five hours and I had reached bowel tolerance. So I think it's really quite significant to consider that the need for that vitamin C under that toxin load in the body and the, and the immune system using all of that antioxidant stores and continuing to replenish them was actually just so important. It was really an eye-opener for me. I didn't expect that, that's for sure. So when you've got a delayed schedule, what is that the rationale uh, behind delaying the schedule? There's a couple of things. From my perspective, delaying the schedule, um, well, I think that when you delay the schedule, people often choose to do one vaccine at a time. If we delay and give four week, four to six weeks in between each vaccine, the rationale there is that we can see if there is a vaccine reaction and then we know exactly what vaccine the child is reacting to, um, giving that space in between each of the vaccines allows time for the body to detox the adjuvants with all of the treatment that we're doing. Um, a main part of the rationale early on is actually really trying to understand how the immune system develops in babies. I think that simply put, we have two arms of, of an immune response. We have a Th1 response and we have a Th2 response and essentially we want them to be balanced. Um, what we know is that if we have two Th2 dominant responses, we those um, people are more likely to experience atopic conditions such as eczema and asthma. If we have Th1 dominant conditions, that's more led by autoimmune conditions. So we really want this to be balanced. What we do know is that it's difficult for babies under the age of nine months to mount that Th1 response. They can do the Th2 response but for long immunity to the vaccines, we need a Th1 response. So what we're doing by giving the vaccines is increasing the Th2 response because they're not able to mount that Th1 response. And when we have this unbalanced response, we can then be causing atopic conditions in these children. There was a study, and it was quite some time ago, it was, it was in Canada back in 2006, and they actually showed a study delaying the DTP vaccine, and they showed that by delaying the DTP vaccine each dose by two months, they reduced the um, atopic conditions in kids by 50 to 60%. Um, in Japan, I, I'm pretty, their DTAP, vaccine is recommended from six to nine months and not before three months. And back in 2006, at the same time of that study, there was a significant difference in the rates of atopic um, conditions. It was like six, something around 6% in Japan and then in Canada where the study was. And the study was in over 12,000 kids. So it was a, a pretty significant study. Um, 
their rates of atopic conditions were in between, or asthma specifically was in between 10 and 15%. So when we understand the immune system and if we're pushing that TH2 response too much, then we're causing that imbalance and then increasing the risk for developing atopy. And I think that, I mean, that's the other reason why vaccines are given so regularly in those early months because the babies can't mount that TH1 response which means that the immunity is really short-lived and it doesn't last long. So they're, they're giving regular vaccines to keep that immunity there and as strong as possible until their TH1 response comes in and then when they vaccinate you at around that, you know, one year of age, they mount that proper TH1 response and get better immunity from the vaccine. And so I guess that given that rates of asthma, eczema, A to B, that it's all increasing, that could be one of the reasons why. And I think that the study and what they were trying to show back then um, was absolutely, you know, supporting that that information. I Like Japan, years and years ago, they never used to vaccinate before the age of two and their asthma rates were even much lower before vaccination. So, look, this is correlation. It's not causation. Um, I, I'm not a researcher. I'm not undergoing this research, but I think certainly if there's atopy in the family, these are topics that could be discussed around how the immune system works. If someone comes to you and they say, I'd like to follow an altered schedule, is that something that if they don't know how to do it, is that something that you might discuss with them, this, the schedule that you, you have as a reference, or do you suggest that they go and see a doctor to help them with that altered schedule and you support them? I think I, I certainly refer them back to the vaccine-friendly plan. I think that it's a decision that they need to make. I think that I I am definitely happy to support families who fully vaccinate, who partially vaccinate, and families that don't. I just think the decision needs to be made from them. And I do say that spacing them four weeks apart gives us time to monitor a reaction and then enough time to detox the adjuvants and the ingredients. But I just think that that when it comes to particular types of vaccines, um, I think that that's the research that they need to do. They need to understand the diseases that are being vaccinated against. They need to understand themselves if they're choosing not to the risks of the condition because essentially it's their child. So if it's your child, you're the one that needs to weigh up those risks and benefits because whether there is a vaccine injury or whether you get the disease, there are risks on both sides and you're the one that lives with your child and you're the, you need to have support by your primary practitioner and the GP because essentially that's the first place you're going to go. So I do think that it's really important for people to make their own decisions based on the research that they have come to. And does your strategy, uh, Amanda, change regarding supporting for vaccinations for children who are healthy versus those who might have a chronic illness? I think that if they choose to vaccinate, it's giving more anti-inflammatory support at both before and after, um, probably with some turmeric and additional fish oils to really support that inflammation cascade response to not worsen it. But as far as your strategies are concerned, you've mentioned you were just like if you had someone with a child with a chronic illness or maybe a behavioural condition or something like that, you might give the the turmeric, the extra fish oil. 
more anti-inflammatory nutrients for added support. And I think that it's really important in those circumstances that they're not fussy eaters and they're very compliant to a very healthy diet and they're you know, if you've got the fussy eaters, then I think it makes it more challenging for them to be on an anti-inflammatory diet and away from those inflammatory foods. We know that gluten can um, disrupt the immune system and has been correlated with a few different autoimmune diseases. So we then need to make sure that we're not consuming those foods around the vaccination time. So all of that needs to be discussed and it needs to be weighed. If you have a fussy eater who isn't improving their health and reducing inflammation through their diet, then maybe different decisions need to be made. But that's when it's important to get the crocodile smoothies out and get lots of nutrition into um, those kids. And sometimes I think in a lot of autoimmune conditions, people might already be off gluten. So maybe it's not even a, a concern in changing the diet if they're aware that there's a behavioural disorder already, then oftentimes these people are already on improved diets. We spoke to Max in our last episode. He's a dad of two young boys who's taken a keen interest in childhood immunizations. A focus on diet is the number one strategy Max employs with his children to support their immune systems. I think really, you know, the boys, um, you get used to it over time, but in contrast, because they have an immaculate diet, you know, they don't have any sugars, they don't have any processed foods, it's all whole foods. We'll have some elements of organic, but some elements of spray-free um, in, our, in our sort of food choices. They never have soft drinks, I mean, other than, you know, the casual party where they'll go out and you know, they'll have those sort of things. At least in a common household cycle that we're in, no soft drinks, no fruit juices, only water, all whole foods. They have their vitamin D, um, they have zinc, they have probiotics, and, and really... Um, you know, so, so yes, basically the dietary element. And they've just got these, this supplementation that we have. And, and, and if there's any sign or early signs of, of, of cold or anything like that, there's all these fortification strategies. There's all these herbs that they take. And there's all this vitamin C they take. So, so you know, there is a – and I don't expect that, that, that. That's still not going to um, stop anyone getting infectious there. But – what it does show is that in countries with more sanitization and more healthier food choices, the, the immunity is better at fighting these, these pathogens and the, these problems. And nothing is risk-free. Nothing will be risk-free there. So there could be very serious complications, potentially even, even having that strong diet and that fortification in, in their system. However, we have had to look at, okay, what if whooping cough comes along, what do we do? What if measles comes along, what do we do? Uh, we have had to go down and develop plans about, okay, what do we do if these things come on? How do we, we, we do that there and on? And so we, we have developed strategies that we do if these diseases come on and how to quickly you know, do it. But we will be relying upon medical care and we're expecting reliable medical care if, if something does happen there. We'll leave the final word to paediatrician Dr Elizabeth Mumper, who does hold concerns for her young patients. 
Well, I have to say that I was mainstream trained. I trained at a highly respected university. I was chosen to be chief resident. I've had, you know, experience both in clinical private practice, in academic medicine, teaching residents and medical students, and now in this specialty practice. And I have always tried to find the middle ground. Um, my personality type is that I am a peacemaker at heart. I actually hate conflict and I've never seen the issue be more polarized. Um, I think that there are people at both extremes and those of us who have tried to be in the movable middle um, are really having a hard time right now. I don't know what the future holds. I will tell you, I am very scared at the prospect of vaccines being mandated for children. I think that no medical intervention, especially if there is plausible evidence that it is not good for everybody, should be mandated by the state or the federal government. I do think that this interferes with the doctor-patient relationship, and it also interferes with the issue of bodily autonomy and the rights of well-informed individuals to make their own health decisions. So by identifying myself as someone who will fight vaccine mandates, I will be discredited and, um, you know, I am already being called someone who sucks at science and someone who must have gotten my medical degree by sending in cereal box tops. Otherwise, I would not talk the way I do about vaccines. And I assure you, you can look up my credentials and uh, see that I did really go to medical school and really do a residency in pediatrics and really do my own published research in this area. So I am being more ostracized than ever. And Yet, I feel a very strong moral commitment to fight vaccine mandates. So, I try to look for people in the movable middle. I try to look at their perspectives. I try to find out what they're fearful of about vaccines or about not getting vaccines. I try to beat them where they are. Um, I would never want to judge anyone for the vaccine decisions they make because I view them as very individual decisions, just like I would try not to judge anyone for religious or spiritual decisions that they might make. But this is an uncomfortable place to be right now. And one of the reasons I work with Children's Health Defense is that Bobby Kennedy and Mary Holland and many of my colleagues there are not afraid of being in an uncomfortable position if they feel like they are fighting for others' best interests. Does that make sense? In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss mental health with Sydney-based integrative paediatrician, Dr. Layla Mason, and Victorian family naturopath, Emma Wisby.
Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au where community is more than a concept. Thank you.